Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey folks, this is a film analysis episode, which we're doing now in light of our authorial intent episode to actually give some concrete practice to the theoretical discussions of interpretation we had last time. I had anticipated that as with our previous movie episodes, the second part of it would be available only to Partially Examined Life supporters. But this discussion ended up being short enough that I'm very happy to be able to present the thing in full right here for you now. However, there is plenty of other full episode quality discussion material recently recorded available only at PartiallyExaminedLife.com with a membership or at Patreon.com at the $5 level, including both the follow-up discussion to our previous episode on authorial intent and within the week after this goes up, there will be a supporter-only discussion Wes and I had about identity politics. So you might want to consider supporting us if you can afford to do so. Thanks. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who are at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 190 is, does letting the world into your private life inevitably screw things up? And we're talking about Darren Aronofsky's 2017 film, Mother. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Meyer, loving how much you love me in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Allen being a bad house guest to the nanny state that is Cambridge. And this is Tim Nicholas sitting on an unbraced sink in Los Angeles, California. Tim, welcome. Hi. This was a rather last-minute idea, and I put out a call for who among our listenership had some experience doing film reviews and things. Tell us a little about your background, Tim. I guess I describe myself as a filmmaker and a writer. I'm currently an MFA student at California Institute of the Arts in their film directing program, but I also write about films, film criticism, and scholarly writing and things like that. And I've written a couple things for the PEL blog on that general theme. And why this film? Well, it was coming out on video at the time. I had heard it was philosophical. I'd heard actually on the Modern Day Philosophers podcast, the two guys in there were saying, wow, this is just a philosophical text, this film. And so I said, hey, we need a fill-in topic. The topic we're supposed to do for this time fell through. We knew we're not going to have a full boat aboard. We're not going to have Dylan here. He's in Barcelona. Seth is just out of it with kid stuff as usual, but has also been traveling. Do we want to give some opening statements about the film? Wes, you had written about this when it came out in the theater and we're a little lukewarm, not positively disposed. What was your initial take? I had mixed feelings about it after first seeing it. I remember though, I went to see it with a friend and we, I think we did have a good conversation about it afterwards, but I'm not someone who's into the horror genre. I tend to find horror movies a mixture of discomfort and boredom and that's the way i felt through much of the movie but i also didn't read anything about it before i went to it and i might not have known what was going on until the cain and abel scene and i think actually knowing what's going on makes it a lot more enjoyable i actually enjoyed watching it much more the second time today than i had enjoyed it the first time in the theater and the other thing i'll say is i also watched some stuff aronofsky q a's and things like that I think he said initially there was going to be a score, but as they were editing, they realized that there shouldn't be a score. The whole score was written. Yeah. I think it could have done with a score. 
I think that would have actually had a profound effect on the on the movie. But I will say again, if you go into it knowing that it's an allegory, I think then you can enjoy it for that. Let's keep these opening remarks fairly spoiler-free, and after that, it will be spoilers all over the place. Hard to talk about the movie without spoilers, I think. (laughs) Similar experience to you, Wes. I I think I had mixed feelings about it, which is similar to how I felt about all the Darinovsky movies I've seen so far. Is um, you know, On one level, I think I've been very affected by them, stressed out, is my immediate experience in watching them, and then... You know, there's always a lot to think about afterwards. It's hard for me to say, like, whether I enjoyed the movie or liked the movie or not, or whether I thought it was a good film, but certainly gave me a lot to chew on. I think often when I know that I'm seeing a movie that is analyzable, frankly, even when it's like a Star Wars movie, because <laughs> there's too much stuff going on on the screen, I'm too much paying attention to things the first time. I don't even know if I enjoy something often until the second time. And then you're not really getting the, the authentic experience. It's the second. You already know what's going to happen. <laughs> so I also went into it blind without having, you know, I purposely didn't read anything beforehand. And I think I'm glad that I did that. But I'd be curious to actually watch it a second time, having read a few interpretations and things like that. What really helped me is we've been prepping for this by reading a lot of random articles. Today I was watching several things on YouTube, just Q&A sessions with the director, with the cast. So I've kind of heard that story a number of times, different people analyzing it. In one of the Q&A sessions, Aronofsky said he was influenced by songwriters in doing this, that unlike his other movies, which usually take a long time to write, he did the first draft of this in five days. I heard that in several places. But that was specifically so that he could just consistently channel a single emotion. So thinking of this film like a song, like a poem, actually makes it make a lot more sense to me both in understanding the mood, you know, that it's really a mood-based thing. And I understand, Wes, why you'd say that it needs a score. Usually the movies that I like just because of their moods are often entirely because of the score. It's just that kind of feeling that I get into if I'm watching The Lord of the Rings again or something, or if I'm watching, you know, The Sixth Sense or one of these kind of dark films that are kind of comfort food in a certain way. It's because the music puts me in a certain mood and just kind of sets up, you know, and then the visuals kind of match that. But I still felt it was very visually musical. I just thought it was a a beautiful piece myself. And even watching it the first time, I really enjoyed the way that pacing was played with, that it kind of gets faster and faster and faster as it goes until it's, you know, the whole second half of the movie or last third is just unrealistically fast. Like that's kind of the whole point. Besides things that could not possibly happen in time and space, But just even if there are regular things, they're just happening way too fast. And you're wondering, like, wait, did they imply that the characters went to sleep and time passed? No, they just (laughs) went from one room to another and different stuff was going on that you would not expect could possibly be going on that quickly. I, in fact, was thinking it was only seeing it again. I realized there actually were scenes in the second half that were slow, where it stopped and kind of was that same feeling that it had in the first part. But Wes, I mean, you were saying you were bored in the theater seeing it. And I can totally understand that. Well, in the beginning, actually, by the time I got to the end, that's one of the reasons I had mixed feelings about it. Because I thought the climactic scenes were some of the most incredible things I had seen. And I, so when people asked whether they should see the movie or not, I always told them yes. So I felt like those beginning scenes, just as if it had a good score, really set a mood for me. So even though it was her walking slowly around a house... <laughs> And peering out the door at the nice field, I was ready to sink in. I knew this was going to be not normal narrative storytelling. And so I was ready to just surrender myself to this mood. And yeah, it is funny that 
there didn't have to be music for me to do that, but the, the film itself served as music. One thing it did really well was the pacing. I, I felt like there was very little breathing room in the film. Things just kept happening one thing after the other before you had a chance to even understand what was going on or why things were occurring, which I felt like was really effective of, of putting you in the same psychological space as the Jennifer Lawrence character and feeling overwhelmed by this constant activity that was interrupting her world. So much of the film was either centered on watching her or over-the-shoulder shots as she was moving through the house and things like that. We were really with her the entire time. Just from an Aronofsky Q&A, every shot is either over her shoulder or looking at her. Or from her point of view. Right. Right. Her point of view over her shoulder or, or at her. That was a really effective technique. That combined with the pacing really created a very particular feeling that he maintained throughout the entire film. It did make it difficult for me to get the layout of the house. I actually watched at the beginning a third time. Apparently, it's an octagonal house. (laughs) They found a design for an octagonal house, and it's very circular that she'll just watch a character walking from room to room in this circle. And then there's a spiral staircase, which I don't think we ever get to see what's at the top of it. He's sometimes just standing there. Or is that his office at the top of it? That's his office where he does his writing. Yeah. So he's standing outside it looking ominous at one point, even though it's already been nailed shut. He just is up there just to look ominous. That's what I didn't quite understand. Maybe there is another level. It's hard to say. I think it's the second floor is where the office is. So there's a balcony on that floor. Maybe there is something above that. The fact that we're not sure about this yet, <laughs> even though the whole thing is takes place in the same house and they walk up and down the stairs and go around the circle so many times, it's because... The camera is so often just locked right on her, so you just there's no peripheral vision. Right. It should be that the house is a character, and it is in a way, but not that the camera is lovingly caressing it all over the place. Sure. Well, the house, in a sense, right? So have we gotten this far without saying what it's an allegory for? <laughs> <laughs> the house, obviously, is Earth. She's the Earth mother. Or in the credits, she's just mother, without the exclamation point. And he is him, capital H. He's the only character who's capitalized in the credits, and he's obviously a god figure of some sort. And the movie pretty closely follows the Bible. So you get Adam and Eve arriving, Cain and Abel, and that murder, and then the biblical flood after the pipes burst because people are sitting on an un... What is it? (laughs) An unbraced sink. And then in the end, you'll get the Christ sacrifice. So... And Aronofsky is straightforward about it. I mean, that's obviously exactly what he was aiming for, and it's, it's not concealed at all within the movie. It's, there's nothing subtle about it. Despite all the Christian symbolism, I mean, there's something very un-Christian about the, the very structure of the film, the sort of cyclical structure of it. Yeah, cyclical in the sense that it begins after the burning down of a house, and it will end that way as well. And then the movie ends the way it starts, with Mother Earth waking up in her bed and saying, Baby... A new Mother Earth, yeah. Yes, a new Mother Earth at the at the end of this. So, yeah, God really goes through the Mother Earths, apparently. <laughs> well, it's a rather unsympathetic portrayal of God if we're reading the hymn character as God, right? You can also read it on the level that this is just about being an artist and some of the narcissism involved in that because a major part of this, right, is God sort of being enamored of the attention that he's getting from human beings. So you get this conflict between God's project what he wants to do, which has something to do with humanity and what Mother Earth wants, which is domesticity and to be left alone. An allegory usually doesn't kind of break the fourth wall and say, this is really an allegory. (laughs) They're not just like God. This actually is a drama about God. Just at the very end, 
she says, what are you? And he says, me, I am I. That's an often quoted Bible thing. I am that I am is the biblical quote, I think. Oh, I was just looking right here. I've heard I am I said that way as well, but I would think that no translation would force you to translate something as I am I, right? So I see a lot of versions of that when I'm looking it up as I am that I am. I think that is the same thing. Yeah, that's the Wikipedia entry, and I think that's the King James translation. But I think you're right. It looks like it's Exodus. So yeah, does that count as a metaphysical fiction or a supernatural religious fiction rather than an allegory when they just say, by the way, I'm God. I mean, the house is still a house, right? So it's still standing in for something else. And even from the beginning, you're already sort of entering that sort of metaphysical territory and breaking the the rules of realism pretty early on. Yeah. And up to a certain point, it's a standalone narrative, right? So it could just be a poet and his wife in their house. You know, as it gets more and more surreal as the movie goes on, then it cannot be anything more than allegorical because it's breaking all the rules in a sense. My hunch is that the allegories work that way in general, right? That's one of the weaknesses of this form, which is that in the end, they don't, or at least they can't sustain our interest as a standalone narrative. That's why seeing it the second time was so much better for me because I was expecting more of a narrative, more of a story when I first went to see it, at least in the beginning, and I was irritated that I didn't get that. But knowing it's an allegory, as Mark said, wanting to sink in and get the emotional substance of it made it really interesting, actually. You could pay attention to the mood and the tone more. I actually think it still worked, though, as a character drama, you know, at least for the first half before it starts really getting off the rails. She keeps taking this medicine when she gets upset. And so you could just interpret it the whole second half as her fever dream or something like that. She never actually is pregnant at all. It's after she's pregnant that she actually throws away the medicine. So that would be the point in which the hallucinations flow freely. And I think before that point, yeah, there are things that just happen way too fast still. He comes back from the hospital and I think they get in bed and then almost immediately there are people downstairs already dressed for a funeral. Like that would not happen until days later, (laughs) seemingly. It was just ambiguous enough. Like, how long were they in bed? Oh, they have nowhere to go. Okay, this is not the actual funeral. This is just people mourning something, and they could do that right after a tragedy. That's not terribly unusual. Even the fact that the sons are showing up at their house that fast in movie time. The mom calls one of the kids, and like within two minutes of movie time, there's one, and there's the other one having followed him. Just the logistics involved in this. Yeah, no, it's the point where they're having all the people over to mourn the sons. I think at that point, we are out of the realm of any possible plausibility. I mean, the stuff that goes on is weird beforehand, but in ways that could serve a purpose in any horror movie, or or any, or even in some dramas. I mean, Like the arrival of Adam and the way that God is just broing it up with Adam and appreciating Adam's adoration of his poetry. And there's even a point where, because at this point, the mother character is getting jealous and, you know, she says, well, I love your work as well. The God character says something like, it's finally, you know, it's nice to finally have someone who really appreciates me or my work or something like that. And that fascinating tension between her and humanity is what really sustains the movie. Yeah, and that begins to get into the Gnostic interpretation of it. The idea of God basically creating some sort of spectator or someone to admire creation. Explain that. Explain the Gnostic angle. Part of the fundamental idea has to do with, first of all, sort of this split between instead of having a singular God figure 
there's multiple god figures, or at least two, or a split god figure. The Demiurge, right, who creates physical reality and is kind of like a secondary god or a false god or something like that. And then the true perfect god or whatever it is. And there's this question of why, if God is completely self-perfect, why would there be a need for God to create the world, create the universe, and create human beings, which are inherently mortal and imperfect, et cetera, et cetera. And the Gnostic answer to that is that basically to sort of have an audience. It's kind of this analog to the artist that being sort of perfect within himself is unsatisfactory. So he creates humankind to sort of admire his creation. So this is stuff that has really its origins in Neoplatonism. And I think the Neoplatonist Plotinus was a big influence on this, but sort of the intersection of ancient Greek philosophy and Christianity, where it's Platonism has turned into some, into basically a form of mysticism and you get a proliferation of these different entities. And it's really weird and it looks very cultish when you see it explained. But I think Manichaeanism, the sort of stuff we saw St. Augustine reacting to Mark was an offshoot of this. The idea that God and the devil are good and evil are sort of these equal forces within the world. So to me, it represents a sort of a kind of way to explain some things about the creation myth, the state of the world in relation to God that just leads to this complicated ontology, this sort of proliferation of explanatory devices that are never really quite satisfying or explained. Yeah, and we should say that the reason that this is relevant, this has been posited as one interpretation of the film is that it uses this sort of Gnostic interpretation of, uh, it's not just using traditional Christian imagery and Christian stories, but using sort of Gnostic versions of those. Which is an explanation of why, why the mother is there, right? I mean, if we think of Christianity supplants to some extent, right, supplanted, or really, I mean, Judaism before that, but I think pagan religions were more focused on Mother Earth. So I guess even, even Greek mythology supplants some of that. So, but originally Demeter and other cultures, other Mother Earth figures would have been the main focus of worship. So it's a kind of weird, there's almost a pagan feeling to inserting her in between God and humanity. Yeah, well, it's necessarily pagan in that the God is not all-knowing or in in an obvious way all-powerful. I mean, he can't, even if he created her, which I think that's the implication that he's creating cycles of her or somehow they grow out of his nature or something like that, even if it's not a, a conscious act of creation, he can't just do whatever he wants. He can't affect her I guess that's the free will issue, even in plain old monotheism or modern Christianity, that once you have a created, whatever that means, then there's an ontological independence. One of the explanations I saw about Gnosticism was defending it is maybe not as weird as you would think, just because you already have in the idea of the Trinity, something that's just as problematic as this. Oh, it's a Trinity, there's three aspects, but we're not polytheists, really. It's just three aspects of the same thing. So maybe there's a Demiurge aspect, and there's a Mother Earth aspect, and there's uh, ten other aspects, Archons or whatever, of God. You know, that's just a different ontology, not necessarily... You could still argue that it's not pagan, although it seems that even the flannel Trinity had a hard time historically with shaking that reputation. The other thing she could represent here is naturalism. She could represent the laws of nature or the mechanism of creation. If we think that, well, God could have just created things, right? He doesn't need evolution. He doesn't need even the laws of natural science. We could just have everything magically here. A table is just a table, and when you drill down, there are no atoms. It's just God created this, and the world is not this scientifically explainable causal order, It's just what God created. That's one possible sort of creation. But 
apparently he needs something else. So you could look at her in a way that she's this intermediary, I think. And that's sort of the heretical idea starts to sort of seep in, I think, is that he may be all powerful, but he's not all powerful in the sense that the world could just have been any way he liked, right? If you're going to create conscious beings, well, the grounds for the possibility of their experiencing anything is order. It's an ordered world. It's a natural state of things, including nature and earth and the environment and all the things that we associate with that. And that is a condition of consciousness and awareness and the sort of thing that God ultimately will thrive on, and at least in this movie, right? On adoration and having fans and worshipers. So I think that's an interesting element to this. If we think of all the house guests, right, as sort of manifestations of humanity who are coming to admire the creator or whatever it is. There's this recurring thing that Javier Bardem's character is saying about life and how excited he is by the life of the people that keep coming to this house. And even when it's terrible things that are happening, you know, his little eulogy that he gives for the the brother that's killed is everyone begins to cry and he says something like, uh, look at all the life in this room or something like that, which from a Gnostic point of view or, or what have you would be, you know, this is something that humanity is bringing to this creation that wouldn't be there just in a purely divine state or whatnot. Can we read that, by the way? Because it comes up a second time in the movie. The same things are said by the character I think is called the Zealot. He sort of seems to be the main worshiper at the end. So would you say something for our child? This is Adam and Eve grieving the death of Abel. Eve says that to Mother Earth at some point before she tells her to put on something decent. And I, th- I think actually the God character gives a eulogy. I wrote part of it down. In each second, an infinite amount of love. And suddenly it seems there is nothing to love, just a vast and silent darkness. But fear not, from within it, there's a voice that's crying out to be heard. Just listen. That is the sound of life, the sound of humanity. That is your son's voice, his cry of love, his love for you. And then that is repeated almost exactly at the end of the movie. It's meant to be comforting, but there's also something so sinister about that. It seems like it's just ripping on the violent imagery of Christianity, of he suffered for you. This is more literal. The sound of you crying about him right now is actually his voice crying. It shows that nobody ever dies. That's an extra layer of weirdness on top of the the traditional Christ. Besides which, part of the Christ shtick is not him on the cross howling. There's no crying out going on. Yeah, and also the mourning scene with all the mourners coming to the house. He continually describes it as using the word life. He says they needed a place to celebrate life. And then when the couple gets into a fight, I'm looking at the script now, he says, all I'm trying to do is bring life into this house. So he explicitly ties it, the full quote he says, actually, he says, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't write, I can't think, because she's challenging him about not being able to write anything. All I'm trying to do is bring life into this house. He needs the sort of drama of these guests. The thing that's causing mother so much suffering is exactly the thing that's inspiring him and making him feel capable of creating again. Yeah, this idea that the voice crying out. That's the sound of life, the sound of humanity. It's this weird idea that, you know, life is more than nature. Life is more than than the earth now. It's human beings. And with that comes murder and mayhem and everything else we will see in the movie. So for Mother, that's a really kind of startling realization that life is going to be more than her. If you look at this, you know, through the this idea of her as Earth personified, it's interesting to think about Earth watching the events of history unfold. And after billions of years of just being the creeping, crawling things and let's say plant life, but getting conscious, let's say conscious beings and ultimately self-conscious beings, human beings, that's a new twist on life. 
the self-conscious being who can love, but also can do horrible things, can wage wars, and all of that stuff. The thing that God sees in this is all the promise of that sort of consciousness, including the possibility of love, which just can't be there with the birds and bees and trees and all that stuff. But the flip side of that is all the destruction. And so she sees through that from the very beginning, all this talk of being inspired and love and this and that, all the things that are, you know, the way Bardem plays it, he's just so out in space all the time. He's just so inspired and filled up with feeling and and kind of flaky, frankly. It's almost as if he's blind to the destructive of the other side of the coin, which is horrible. It seems that life is depicted as being fundamentally chaos. And it comes straight out of the multiplicity of human beings. So that even if one character is behaving appropriately, then some other character is going to come along and have a much worse take on the same situation and screw things up. And this God is not a God that keeps track of the righteous versus the unrighteous. So either everything has to just be, it's life, it's crazy, it's, it goes this way and that, and you can forgive humanity as a whole, as he suggests at the end, or you just have to damn them all, which is what she does at the end, and just burn the whole freaking place down. <laughs> I think the only time we see his character really get angry or make any sort of judgment against the house guests, we could call them, is when they break the heart, the sort of eating the apple scene. Other than that, I can't remember a time when he really judges them at all. He gets violent with Cain after the killing of Abel and gives him a wound. And then at some point, he's pulling people off her to save her life. Yeah, and immediately wants to forgive them in that moment. Yes, he's this enormously accepting figure, right? But you get the sense, well, it's one thing for God to forgive. It's one thing to send a Christ figure down to be sacrificed. But what about, you know... (laughs) What about the rest of creation? That's sort of the point raised by this movie, including other human beings. It's sort of reminiscent of Dostoevsky's portrayal of the problem of evil. All the talk of forgiveness and sacrifice and being saved by religion and free will, and this is the way it has to be for us to be the creatures that we are. Isn't it better to be created than not? And Well, maybe not. Maybe the suffering and evil in the world inherently come along with all of that are just an argument for never doing it. Why would you do this as God? Why would you create this? And that becomes God's blind spot. It becomes his sort of manic, flaky artist element. That's what you get out of this. Hey, man, I just want to be a poet. (laughs) Why not be more practical? Maybe that can pivot us. Another possible reading of the film, the one that actually, if you look at interviews with Aronofsky himself, is sort of the one that he most talks about is as a sort of climate change allegory. So the mother character would still be read as Mother Earth in this reading. But then I, I suppose instead of as God, we would read Javier Bardem's character as something like civilization or the impulse of humanity to create and build and sing its own praises. And subjugate, exploit and subjugate Earth. And obviously he is exploitative of Mother in the sense that he's neglectful, I guess, is really a better way to put it. I did notice he's always saying, oh, let me help. You don't have to do all that. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, he never actually gets to help. (laughs) Yeah. Because he gets distracted by something. Yeah. In one case, by the arrival of fans. and Right. God has good intentions. <laughs> it's the thought that counts. <laughs> Until the important scene, and this is one of the things toward the end, one of the few places where it actually does slow down, which is him waiting for her to fall asleep. 
That's such a great sequence, though. Yeah, super creepy. And you sort of know what's going to happen at that point, which is that the baby is not going to live through it. He's going to give it to the to humanity, and she's desperately trying to stay awake. And he's just sitting there staring at her, just rapacious, monomaniacal, completely focused on essentially making this this sacrifice. Yeah, it's interesting just thinking cinematically, too, the way that that scene is depicted. Because we're shown the passage of time just through the, the quality of the light changing. It goes through sort of three different color temperatures as the time passes in that scene. Well, it's night, it becomes day, and then it becomes night again. So we're kind of with the mother character still as she's, you know, her experience of, of struggling to stay awake. And she knows exactly what's going to happen as soon as she falls asleep. So why that monomania, for God? Why this determination to make that sacrifice, to go above and beyond mother herself? It seems that that is the place where the mask slips away, that maybe all this politeness that has been going on throughout really is just perhaps somewhat self-deceptive, but humoring her when really, if his authority is challenged, like, no, I'm not going to actually put up with that. So it might seem, if you're polite enough, it can seem like the power relationship has some equality to it, that the relationship is a two-way street. But once she really challenges him, asks him the one thing that he doesn't want to do is tell them to go away. And I, I thought it was great that she sends... He's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll tell him to go away. And, and he leaves for a second, comes back, oh, they brought gifts. And she said, oh, did you tell him then to go away? And he's like, oh, what? what? Like, <laughs> and finally, he you know, admits, yes, like, I don't want him to. And then, yeah, I think there was some self-deception there. I think he was thinking that he could balance these things. It's all this, I'll be right in, you know. <laughs> but as soon as he's out of sight of her, then she's out of mind and he's sharing the entire house or whatever. Do we want to discuss the sort of authorial intent issue? I think there's two ways to talk about that with this film. One is that it, it's part of the allegory itself. There's sort of the artist muse allegory, and then there's also the sort of cult that forms around the creator, which could be seen as in many ways a, an allegory about authorial intent and the sort of cult of the author. And then there's also, just as a film, as a text, the film has received a lot of differing interpretations. And it's kind of an open question as to how much we listen to the filmmaker and how to interpret it. Especially when the filmmaker says, oh, I love the fact that it has so many levels and you can read anything you want into it. So... <laughs> That he himself is admitting, yes, I had certain things in mind that drove my the specific creative decisions here, but I think he is of the school that says once it's out in the world, then it is fair game, and in fact, encouraging that. Although I did see him shoot down some interpretations. I know he said explicitly it's not an allegory about crazy fans being obsessed with my work. Being obsessed with his work, yes. He's like, no, people are not clamoring to, for me to make another one of these things. You're right. <laughs> he is not Justin Bieber. <laughs> it still is obviously, even if it's not autobiographical in that way, just those scenes where he's in front of the people and they're waving their autograph pads around and there's the flashing cameras. Do cameras really flash like that anymore? <laughs> Do they make those <laughs> clicking sounds? Like it's from a 1960s movie or, you know, 80s. Well, actually, do paparazzi still carry those big? They might because it's hard to. At night? Probably. <laughs> I mean, at night, yeah, you have to, they'd certainly have 35 millimeter cameras or, and then maybe zoom lenses. And then, yeah, you have to have a flash if you're trying to get a celebrity at night. I don't think you can be, get around that. It was so captures a cinematic way of presenting fame. And it was carefully choreographed because 
the level of noise and clamor was going up, you know, in very discreet intervals so that, you know, the camera is on him and there's a few people out in front of him and then she's doing something and the camera's back on him and it has grown twofold in the, in that 20 seconds. Yeah. People coming out of the woods, (laughs) wandering from every direction toward the house, you know, carrying gifts and things like that. Yeah. I did think before, you know, the surrealism became obvious, like, where's the road? (laughs) The, <laughs> oh, the police just dropped me off. Oh, how did that work? How did all these people arrive? Didn't, didn't they, they all came in separate cars, Cain and Abel, and where are their cars? <laughs> I thought that was handled great because it makes you distrust Javier Bardem's character. He comes back and he says, oh yeah, the police dropped me off. It's, it seems very implausible. It's not any less plausible than uh, the SWAT team showing up uh, 20 minutes later. It very quickly escalates beyond just a sort of artist-fan relationship into something that is much more sort of religiously loaded. It's, you know, where there's sort of warring factions of interpreters, you could say. And you never really get a sense of even what the poem is that's caused all of this, besides maybe a couple words I think are repeated at some point or read at some point. How do we know that it's, it's warring factions of interpreters? I actually missed that. It's a very quick scene. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just my interpretation of it, but okay. one line that, that stuck out in my mind, so there's that the zealot character, right? There's one scene, they have the um, the wall has been kind of covered in his those little portraits of him, and he's anointing people with ink. Right. And there's a line of people, which I think is a gesture that initially Javier Bardem accidentally does to someone, rubbing ink on their forehead. And then the zealot character is repeating this as a sort of ritualistic gesture. The word that he says to each of them when he does this is, his words are your words. That line really stood out to me. And then shortly after that, yeah, we're in this kind of war zone where there's gunfire happening. There's in in the basement, there's a prison constructed where I think all the prisoners are women. Oh, really? I'd have to go back and rewatch it, but I I think that might be. I didn't notice that either. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually the character that grabs her is called the whoremonger. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Right. I I had the subtitles on for part of it. So it actually would show cupbearer says la for some of it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. That's really funny. The credits are um, sort of an interpretive device, or the subtitles are an interpretive device. Laranovsky says, yeah, there's tons of clues in the credits. He kept referring people to the credits when they were asking questions, if they wanted to decipher it. I mean, yeah, really, all of history is sort of fit into such a small amount of time and space, which is really one of the, the thing that I thought was spectacular when I first saw it. To answer your question, the warring factions thing, that was my interpretation of there's that scene where the people lying on the ground with the bags on their head and they're being executed. Okay. By Kristen Wiig, his publicist. I couldn't tell whether her and the sort of zealot character were on the same side of this war that was raging or if they were on opposite sides of the war. But you got the sense that there were, that some of the people who had come to visit the house were victims and some of the people that had come to visit the house were perpetrating these war crimes or whatever. So... I interpreted that as being, yeah, sort of warring factions of this cult. You got the sense that some of this was religious strife, and she's executing those people on the ground, and then says, bring me six more, or something like that. Right before that scene is, it was actually in the in the subtitles, it was saying, sloganeers. She goes to the stairs, and there are people on the stairs going, rah, 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 you know, pumping their arms. And there are other people coming from outside with a different slogan. I couldn't make out what either slogan was. <laughs> But they were called, somebody was called a sloganeer. So there you go. 
There was also the earlier where they're like, where's the original? The Kristen Wiig, his agent character, who she's called the Herald, actually, is her technical name. Ask, you know, where's the original version of this? And the Acolyte has it and is like, no, don't touch it. And then he puts it on a stick and starts carrying it, you know, and marching around and people are following him and doing this marching with him. You know, even though I saw the religious strife element, I was thinking, well, this is an attempt to sort of cram all of human ill-doing and history into one space, which is really amazing. You know, you had soldiers and machine gun fire and just all kinds of stuff going on. You know, Mark, you were mentioning at the beginning this sort of constriction of space and time where things had gotten faster and faster and everything is being fit into this small place, which is, of course, what exactly what we do with storytelling as well and with consciousness you know so to see that done in a way literally even though as an allegory right you almost see that as a metaphor for subjectivity the spatio-temporal distortion and then the fact that all of these ills sort of stem from subjectivity stem from the types of beings that we are the animals can't do this nature can't do this the fact that the mother character herself is sort of forced into this interpreter role in the sense that all these things are being forced at her and she's sort of have to, having to figure them out. And meanwhile, when we have the sort of Adam and Eve characters visiting at the beginning, the mother character herself is like completely legible. The Eve character immediately knows what she's thinking or feeling at any moment just based on the look on her face or whatever. They're having that discussion about having children and things like that, and, and she is able to read her immediately. Whereas the mother character herself is sort of struggling to interpret the events happening around her and that kind of reaches its climax at that that very fast moving scene with the the war and all that um where things are moving too quickly for her to even comprehend what's happening one of the things i noticed in the second viewing here was earlier there's characters that are trying to help her by painting the walls and in that same scene where people are ripping out the sink and kicking each other, and there's a fight going on in the next room. Behind her, there are people painting the walls. That is going on at the same time. I just thought that was a weird and random. Let me help. We've spent a lot of time talking about sort of our, our readings of the film. I think it would be worth talking a little bit more abstractly about sort of the question of interpretation and what justifies these readings or what makes them convincing or whatnot. How much we should listen to Aronofsky's interpretation of his own film. Right. And part of that has to do with what the status of the meaning is at all. Because if you read it now, like I do, as following his words, that this is more of a song, this is an expression of an emotion, then the meeting is kind of superstructure. It's kind of, yes, it matters. It matters like the lyrics of a song do, but like the lyrics don't really have to make sense. And that was a lot of people were criticizing the movie is that like, no, all these things actually don't add up. You're shoving in too much. I don't think I agree with this, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that there's an absolute thematic coherence if it's really just some head candy that's put on top of a basically emotional experience. It really could be as simple as he says, like, yeah, I wanted to have Mother Earth and people not treating the Earth well. And there you go. That doesn't necessarily dictate every little detail. Anyway, that's at least one potential, let's say, meta interpretation. <laughs> Although I do think that, you know, some of the symbolism in the film is so transparent and obvious, at least to sort of a Western viewer, that it's sort of hard to deny that it was, you know, intentionally placed there. Yeah, and he himself has talked about intentionally placing it. You don't have to. But has he talked about Gnosticism, for instance? Not that I know of, but he's talked about, yes, I went through Genesis and I just 
mm-hmm. retold Genesis. And he did this thing with the audience and, you know, and the Michelle Pfeiffer character is, and the audience would say Eve and the Ed Harris character is <laughs> Adam. <laughs> and the two kids fighting are Cain and Abel. <laughs> so really, I, I, that's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that. So clearly wanted that part at least to be explicitly understood. Oh yeah. That's his intention. Yeah. Yeah. Very openly. And that's, it's very obvious and you don't need him to tell you. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, if we're thinking about authorial intent, is how much is it valid to sort of bring in not just his comments about this film, but sort of his prior work. Because prior to this, he made that film Noah. And even if he hasn't explicitly talked about Gnosticism in relation to Mother, that film also explicitly had a lot of Gnostic imagery or interpretations of Genesis that were not the the standard Catholic or Protestant interpretation of the text, bringing in sort of non-canonical literature and things like that. If we're looking at kind of his body of work as a whole, I think there's definitely justification for saying that that Gnosticism stuff is actually in there and it's not just accidental. The question though is you could be using that kind of thing just as playthings. Like he's not really saying anything with it. In fact, the fact that he's so obvious, yeah, I just went through Genesis and I picked stuff out. Well, then is the philosophical content of the film a particular take on Genesis or is he really just using these cultural touchstones as a way of trying to reach deep within us and shake us around a little bit, you know, just as a brute force tool rather than as a real message serving device. Well, I think as you've already said, one of the the things that Aronofsky most commonly says in reaction to, you know, what's it about? Yeah, it's about, you know, we never think about how we're treating Mother Earth, something like that. And I wanted to reflect on that. And you can think about environmentalism there, that sort of thing. But just this visceral, I mean, obviously the emotional pivot point of the movie is this idea that we are part of something, this creation and nature for which we somehow, you know, there's a fair amount of contemptuousness and carelessness and even hate, I think, directed at it. And, you know, there are analogs there to misogyny and then what happens at various points to the mother character in the film where she's told by Eve to put something less revealing on, or she's called a cunt and various other names as she's being beaten. Something about that hatred of what, even of motherhood and, and what all that represents, which I think is parallel to this these feelings towards nature. So I think that there's a dark side, you know, as, as much as we might say we love nature and there's a fair amount of evidence and it's, you know, obviously a lot of it is just practical, right? It's about exploiting nature for the sake of power and for the sake of doing things, but it's possible that it's also more than that. But Mark, I'm just trying to get it back at the sort of emotional pivot point that you're pointing to. If I want to really take it seriously as a very tightly controlled symbol system, then everything would kind of have to make sense and be internally coherent, obey the laws that it sets up. So for instance, if we say that she is Mother Earth, well, isn't Mother Earth the mother of people? And yet all the people in the film are, she doesn't know who they are. (laughs) They're a total surprise to her. She's threatened by them. So I, one of the interpretations I read is maybe even the baby thing is not exactly a Christ figure, but the fact that Mother Earth gives us so much bounty and we don't treat it well, we disrespect it. But that's not actually what happens in the film at all. She does not give <laughs> the bounty. She does not want to give anything to these people. A couple times she's kind of shamed into, okay, I guess this kid who's, you know, the mother has brought among the fans has brought her kid into the house to use the bathroom. And she's just like, no, get out of here. I, you know, I, but then she noticed like the kid has actually pissed himself at that point. Like, okay, fine. So she kind of is showing mercy for a second there until 
it turns out that actually there's already a huge line to the bathroom and <laughs> a very rude guy is already using it and like, hey, can I have a little privacy here? You know, where he's already barged into her privacy. Well, I'm not sure necessarily because at that point she's just responding to the exploitative part. Yes, we never get to see her to be good friends with human beings, but maybe there is never a point where they're good friends. Maybe it's all exploitation. We don't necessarily have to think of her as reflexively giving to human beings in particular, right? She just wants to be alone with God. And the other element of this is just, you know, the idea of Mother Earth as the mother of humanity. Well, yes and no. I mean, that goes back to the, are human beings of nature or have they transcended nature? And I think the representation here is that in some sense they are not of nature. They have this more direct relationship to God in the same way that in Genesis. In fact, the movie, I think one of the working titles for the movie was The Sixth Day, which is the day that human beings were created. So before all that, it's just nature. And then human beings are sort of pasted on in a way. They're discontinuous in some sense with nature. Right. They're the destructive element that if we think about the cyclical nature of the film, nature is continually repairing the damage that's done by human beings. To respond to what you were saying, Mark, about, you know, whether it's sort of a consistent symbol system or not, I guess I have two thoughts about that. One is I think there's a tension between sort of the, the allegorical form and the sort of horror movie genre in that horror films are generally psychologically focused. And in this film in particular, we already talked about, you know, how much we're focused on Jennifer Lawrence's character staying with her character. We're experiencing things always from her perspective. And we're kind of together with her feeling of anxiety and being overwhelmed throughout the film. In a sense, that psychological focus really works against the sort of allegorical structure and that allegories generally aren't especially psychological, right? Each of the characters is sort of a stand-in for an idea. Or is a component of an overall psychology, right? The psychological entity supervenes on the whole story, is not, not any one character. I know some of the complaints that were made about this film had exactly to do with that. By the end of the film, we've gone so off into the realm of allegory that the psychological aspect of it becomes completely implausible, right? At the end, after she gives birth and she's waiting in the room, she's not behaving the way a normal human being would respond to that situation. She's actually behaving somewhat rationally. Whereas if you had just been through this experience of like, you were in your house about to have dinner with your husband and then suddenly there was a war and uh, <laughs> a religious cult was formed um, and then someone's attempting to steal your baby. Like, I think that the only uh, plausible reaction to that would be complete incomprehension and hysteria, you know, not able to think rationally. So there's this kind of tension there that for me kind of, in order for the film to function as a decent horror film, I think it inherently has to sort of not function entirely perfectly as an allegory. But then I'd also say that I think allegories are almost never completely airtight. If we think of Aronofsky here, he's not just trying to retell Genesis, right? He's taking all these different symbol systems. There's this Gnosticism thing, there's the artist muse thing, there's this thing about interpretation, thing about climate change. He's taking all these symbol systems, all these chains of, of reference and association, and sort of playing with sticking them together. And I think inevitably that nothing's ever going to completely line up, right? Even some of the very obvious symbolism, I noticed the Adam and Eve figures early on. I mean, it makes sense that you have the scene of, of them breaking the crystal, which is sort of the disobeying the command to not eat the apple. And then immediately after that, mother glances them in the room and they're having sex immediately after she tells them to leave. 
So it seems like, okay, that's a straightforward biblical reference, right? After they eat the apple, they gain sexuality or self-consciousness. But then I thought back about it and I thought, you know, even in the scenes prior to that, the Eve character, as soon as she appears, is immediately a sexual character. And also mean as hell. Right, exactly. That really goes against the sort of conventional understanding of the Adam and Eve story. And whether that is something being said by that, 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 that character is portrayed that way, or is that sort of like he's trying to do two things at once and there's no way to get them to line up perfectly? No, I, I think that was totally a matter of trying to construct a suspense, you know, just also the Ed Harris character showing up and wouldn't God know that it, you know, it was his creation? <laughs> like the dynamic between the two characters is not at all the dynamic of Adam and the creator God. Well, I'm not sure it's clear that the God character doesn't know it's his creation. Okay, so you think this is more other deception and self-deception in terms of, you know, the whole pretense that, you know, I thought it was a bed and breakfast and you just stop by and then he reveals that actually he's a fan and, but she's discovered, the mother has discovered, meanwhile, the picture of him in the guy's bag. I think God is like a great big puppy dog. And he's very absent-minded. <laughs> so if you gave a, a golden retriever the power to create a human companion and then had them <laughs> send him walking towards your door, the golden retriever would still be jumping up and down and wagging its tail on the, the literal <laughs> fact. And if Adam said to him, oh, I thought this was a bed and breakfast, because Adam doesn't know necessarily, although in Genesis, I guess he does. But that's the sort of thing he might relay to his wife, right? The God character functions on the level of like I said before, flaky, poetic excitement. His head is always in the clouds. And I don't see it so much as deception as just that sort of absent-mindedness for the sake of being an artist, for the just total artist mode. I don't know, Mark, does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I'm just, if you're thinking what actually drove the creative choices moment to moment, I don't think that the allegorical character drove the particular way that their psychologies ended up getting spelled out and their initial misunderstandings and the dynamics. They're just too interesting, as as Tim was just saying, that allegories, they would be more rote. It would not be as richly spelled out. I was trying to think, though, you know, is that really a case for allegories in general kind of restrict that kind of characterization? And what can I think of, like Animal Farm? Well, that's sort of a kid's book anyway, so it's not like the characters are going to be super sketched out. And I seem to remember being very sad when the horse was taken away to the glue farm, (laughs) reading that when I was much younger. Like, the characterizations were enough. It's not that every line served the, the allegory necessarily, even in that case. Or Grapes of Wrath, isn't that an allegory? And that's chock full of awesome characterization and things like that. Maybe it just has an allegorical element to it. It is not purely an allegory. Yeah, I would say that that's sort of more an in-between case. But even in in Animal Farm, right? I mean, I don't think allegory necessarily precludes sort of uh, sympathetic identification or any kind of emotional involvement. But I think what it does not have space for is psychological realism to sort of identify with the psychology of a character in this really deep way. When you're reading Animal Farm, you might be sad about the, the horse being brought to the glue farm, but you're not identifying necessarily with a character of a horse who's who's turned into glue. That can be his next project, Aronofsky. (laughs) Yeah, wasn't there a movie that came out pretty recently, like from the point of view of a dog, and it got like one star, you know, across the board. It was just completely savage that it was not. Animal movies are hard to do. Homeward Bound did a pretty good job, I think. 
at making you emotionally identify with animal characters. Right? It's shot entirely from the point of view of the dog with the with the breathing intact. <laughs> that you're in like a serial killer movie. <laughs> Yeah, going back to your question, Mark, about whether Aronofsky is just sort of playing with these elements or whether he's trying to build a very specifically constructed, a true allegory where where all the pieces mean a specific thing. I was reminded of this blog post by the the film historian and film scholar David Bordwell. I wrote about his book about a film interpretation on the PEL blog. But back when The Dark Knight came out, that was another film that that caused a a whole wave of interpretive writing. You know, it was talked about a lot as sort of a post 9-11 allegory. um, And there was a lot of debate about whether it, you know, had a right wing perspective or a left wing perspective. I want to read this quote from this article because I think this is is really relevant to exactly what you're saying. So he's kind of rejecting this whole premise, the idea that the film has a very specific perspective and is meant as an actual allegory. So he says, I remember walking out of Patton, 1970, with a hippie friend who loved it. He claimed that it showed how vicious the military was by portraying a hero as an egotistical nutcase. That wasn't the reading offered by a veteran I once talked to, who considered the film a tribute to a great warrior. It was then I began to suspect that Hollywood movies are usually strategically ambiguous about politics. You can read them in a lot of different ways, and that ambivalence is more or less deliberate. A Hollywood film tends to pose sharp moral polarities and then fuzz or fudge or rush past settling them. For instance, take the Bourne Ultimatum. Yes, the espionage system is corrupt, but there is one honorable agent who will leak the information, and the press will expose it all, and the malefactors will be jailed. This tactic hasn't had a great track record in real life. The constitutive ambiguity of Hollywood movies helpfully disarms criticisms from interest groups. It also gives the film an air of moral seriousness. I'm not saying that films can't carry an intentional message, nor am I saying that an ambivalent film comes from its makers deliberately implanting counterbalancing cues. Sometimes they probably do. More often, I think filmmakers pluck out bits of cultural floatsam opportunistically, stirring it all together and offering it up to see if we like the taste. It's in filmmakers' interest to push a lot of our buttons without worrying whether what comes out is a coherent intellectual position. Patton grabbed a lot of people and got them talking, and that was enough to create a cultural event. Ditto The Dark Knight. So I'm not sure I'd say that Aronofsky is quite that opportunistic or blasé about how his film is read. He seems a lot more concerned with a particular reading of it. I'm not convinced he's trying to construct an airtight allegory either. How do you feel, Wes, we were talking before about the distinction between the way that we think about how to interpret a work is that I'm more concerned perhaps with the the overall effect, whereas you are focusing on the meaning. And here I'm suggesting that really the meaning is part and parcel, but really subsidiary to the effect of it as a film, that you're not going to have him write a novelization of this. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. There's not enough ideas packed into here to warrant that. It's too organic that there are so many films that, you know, it's the filmic version of a book or something like that, or at least you could see, they talk about multiple cuts of the film being very different. With this, it just, it seems too well crafted filmically. Every scene, I'm sure there were other versions of the edit and there were several versions of the script, so I'm exaggerating exactly how organic this is. I'm not I'm sure, I'm not sure what you're, you're asking. You know, whether, whether it makes sense to talk about the meaning of the film in isolation from just its effect as a, as a song, as a film. It's emotional effect. Yes. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. So is it worth us? I mean, we could try to still figure out, is there a message here that as philosophy we should care about? <laughs> so far, I don't really see one other than, ah, you know, <laughs> People are so terrible. Well, it's not just about a 
a message or a thesis, I mean, the thesis doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, as you're pointing out, the effect, it's a way of giving you, this is part of the reason we tell stories, it's to put you in touch with it at something lower than an, than an abstract level. So the kinds of things I was saying, for instance, it has me thinking about the relationship between nature pre-subjectivity and then nature post-subjectivity and the ills of that. And you can you can talk about all sorts of obviously philosophical ideas, ideas based on that. You're not thinking the thoughts that Aronofsky was thinking beforehand, obviously, but it's a launching point for lots of different sorts of re- reflections, including reflections that are just part of the theological tradition. Tradition, Like, so for instance, God's really fraught relationship with the corporeal, right? Why, and this is like Milton's Paradise Lost, is all about this. Why go for physicality? In the beginning, it's all just spirits in heaven, and everyone's having a great time. Why do this, this particular sort of project? And... You get the sense in Milton that God wants to have something sensuous. He wants to be able to see and touch and do these, you know, he wants to be affected in a way that he can't be as pure spirit. And creation is not actually complete until there's a fall. So Eve, part of the, this is the other sense you get from Paradise Lost, which is that the reason why Eve eats of the, the tree is because she wants to be seen. She wants to be objectified in a sense. She wants to be seen as a sensuous and not simply a spiritual being. So the fall just finishes creation. It gives you human subjectivity in its full form that doesn't exist before that. Before that, it's just mother and then these washed out characters of Adam and Eve who haven't exactly departed from mother. So those sorts of questions, like the whole interesting thing about God and the corporeal and the physical, and then you could ask philosophical versions of those questions, mind and matter and all that stuff. So, I think the emphasis on meaning goes part and parcel with the discounting or not relying exclusively or even mostly on the intentions of the author to connect this to our previous episode. That if you think as our Knapp and Michaels article that the meaning of the film just is the intended meaning of the author, well, then he's already told you what it is. <laughs> And it just is not that interesting. What is interesting about the film would have to be its filmic qualities, how it was shot, whether it's actually effective, which is still something we, I'm not really sure for the reason I spelled out at the very beginning, that how do you tell whether it's effective, whether a lot of people hated it. So in that sense, it wasn't effective for them. One of the problems of a, of a very straight literal allegory is at its most literal, it just becomes an illustration of a pre-existing idea. In order to be a compelling work of art, you know, an allegory would have to have something else going on, something that's new beyond just the idea it's trying to illustrate. Is that kind of the same question? Yes, I think that the fact that it is a full-fledged work of art means that it is sensuous in the appropriate ways, that it, it has the characterizations, that it has the emotions, that it has interesting visual things, that it has interesting auditory things, even if it's not music, but there's, you know, very careful sound design through the whole thing and really interesting use of color staging and the blocking and, you know, the fact that that, that all goes together. That is the filmic effect that I think if you really start to drill down into, well, yeah, how many hours <laughs> the script was put together pretty quickly. <laughs> so the bulk of the effort certainly was not in coming up with the meaning as it would be perhaps for a poem or certainly a piece of prose literature where you really could focus just on, 
yeah, okay, there's the word choice. There's art involved in that. There's other structural elements. There's formal elements. But so much of it just is what is the meaning. I just want to point out that I, I had just been talking about God's project of creation as having to do with this desire to descend from a certain level of abstraction, right? The spirit level yes. to the corporeal. And now you're talking about that being in the, in the nature of a work of art. And I was responding to you. Okay. That was not All a right. coincidence. <laughs> it's not an accident. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great parallel into the whole nature. Are you suggesting the film doesn't do that successfully or that it does? You're mentioning sound design and. Is it aesthetically satisfying to you? Is it? I might have to see it again in an, in another month or something. And this is a whole separate topic, and this you know we might as well get into it. But the way that we experience versus the way that we analyze something, and as a critic, how those things relate. That just the fact that one is a critic or entering, you know, I was watching this knowing that we were going to talk about this. That's quite different than if I just watched it like you did, Wes, in the theater with a friend. And I know already so much of whether I enjoy something has to do with who I see it with. You know, if I'm watching something with in, my, in mind, like, is my wife, are my kids going to like this? It's a quite different experience than if I just, I already know they're going to hate it or, you know, know that it's not appropriate for them. And this is just something I am taking in myself and I'll have a more authentic experience with it that way. Wait, did you watch... You didn't watch this with your wife and kids, did you? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but it's but I'm excited enough about it that I kept, you know, I was telling him about it at dinner and kind of wanting even though I know my wife would absolutely hate this just because of the violent parts, she just doesn't like anything that's a a, a real bummer. It was such a coherent work like I want I want the feedback of somebody whose tastes I know that well sitting next to me and watching it and seeing we watched Lost together that had somebody getting hung in that <laughs> why not experience this too suppose it's a family film in a way <laughs> <laughs> it's about a family all it lacks is the Disney songs <laughs> yeah see if only it had that score it could have been <laughs> much more family friendly my daughter did walk by uh, while I was watching this uh, for the second time exactly at the point of the Cain and Abel part. You know, she was not trying to watch it with me, but it was like, what the hell are you, are you watching? Like, no, it wasn't like this until just now. This is a surprise. <laughs> this is the violent part. And now it's over. Now it's going to be calm for a while. Related to what you were saying, Mark, about the, the sort of disjunction between interpretation and sort of sensuous appreciation or um, aesthetic appreciation, I think one of the key texts there would be Susan Sontag has that famous essay, Against Interpretation, which is exactly this idea that in the process of interpretation, you're kind of killing the work. You're taking out the elements of the work, separating them from the, the organic whole, the experience of the work itself, and mapping them onto these abstract intellectual concepts. And there's something lost there, or there's something missing there. Not that interpretation is not a valuable exercise, but there's other ways to appreciate an aesthetic object than just through interpreting it. So I'm thinking about, and I think I brought this as, up as an example in our authorial intent episode, and it's a vain example, but only because this it allows me to think about me interpreting. So I wrote an essay about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I had a very visceral, emotional response to that movie. And so all the interpretations I have begin with really kind of a mixture of an emotional response and a hunch. 
And one of them was just sort of seeing the way the role technology, the variety of different things that technology was doing in the film, including, say, the way it was affecting family life, you know, these different gadgets and the phones and laundry and the level of distraction that was inserting into people's lives. And then sort of getting the sense that overall the film was sort of about the possibility of redemption in technology. And so it becomes sort of thematically about getting technology to do that through art and to serve the purpose of human connection rather than undermining it, something like that. So I think there really is a, the interpretive level can be something that enhances or serves as a sort of reflection on the initial emotional response, which in the beginning for me, like I don't even know how to put words to it necessarily at the very beginning. I just know I'm being affected by something and I know it's important. It's not just sound and shape. I'm attuned to like, for instance, the emotional dynamics of a family and the really, really clever way their milieu, their context is, is being used to enhance that, including the technological context. I don't deny, by the way, that after you're done with the whole process of interpretation, you've effectively <laughs> killed something. You've gotten too abstract. I feel almost burnt out after I've done it. And I always wonder, well, why, why did I do this? Like, I've, I've sort of exhausted my interest even in this particular film. I don't see it strictly as a conflict. You were emotionally affected by that film as an adult, you're saying? Both as a kid and as an adult. I wrote that essay because I saw it on its 48th anniversary in the theater. The only thing I vaguely remembered from the film as a kid was just the, the flying saucer at the end, this big lit up flying saucer and just the sense of wonder at that. And then the spookiness of the kid disappearing and the sort of toys being activated, all these electronic toys. And then maybe something about him with the mashed potatoes, you know, making the sculpture. A few iconic things like that, but that was it. Some of those emotional responses from a kid, like the wonder part, I sort of got to do that a second time and reflect on that. There wasn't as much of a feeling of wonder or spookiness this time, but there were different types of responses. I'm just comparing that in my head to the wonder I had. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Escape from Witch Mountain. The girl can talk in your head and the boy is telekinetic and makes a piece of chalk fly around and stuff. And there were so many wonderful elements to that. But then seeing it with my kids as an adult, like, it's a fine little kids film, but <laughs> no, <laughs> it is not. It is not. It's pretty dated. Let's put it that way. It's uh, emotionally affected in the way John Denver perhaps is. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if you're still really listening to your John Denver album, something's wrong with you. What you were saying, Wes, reminded me what you were saying about the sort of exhaustion of interpretation. Reminds me one thing about the problem with focusing so intently on authorial intent, right? Is that once we've sort of uncovered the intent of the author and we feel like, okay, this is what this film means. This is what it was intended to mean. We're kind of done with it, right? There's nothing left to discover in the film. I was looking over the um, Foucault reading, the what is an author? And this one line stood out to me where he talks about Sort of the opposite of that approach. He says, writing unfolds like a game that inevitably moves beyond its own rules and finally leaves them behind. And then this process of interpretation that's not focused on authorial intent, he says, is concerned with, quote, creating an opening. And that's really interesting to me because I think once we abandon the focus on authorial intent, you are able to sort of repeatedly return to a work of art and sort of continually investigate what it is that moves you about that work and find new things in it each time that may be beyond what the creator of that work intended to put there. 
Yeah, we can engage, and the creative process involves play, right? It involves some sort of surrender to some extent of rigid, intentional control. But play, on the other hand, isn't completely unintentional. It isn't completely chaotic and void. So it's somewhere in this transitional land in between those two things. And then as critics, we can come to it with some sense of play as well, I think. So I'm still trying to connect explicit authorial intent versus having your expectations set appropriately, right? There's so many ways that can be done. Somebody who has seen the movie can just talk to you about what kind of thing it is. But they're clearly, like, the reason a lot of people hated this movie, and maybe, Wes, the reason that you had mixed feelings initially, is because somehow your expectations were not set. And maybe with a genre-breaking film like this, your expectations can't be set, other than just, this is going to be a wild ride. You know, what, yeah. <laughs> what Aronofsky himself kept saying. He talks about punching you in the face or something, and <laughs> some people are going to say, don't do that, and some people are going to say, punch me again. <laughs> So even knowing that, like hearing that speech by him probably would have been helpful. Also, it, it's surrealism, and surrealism used to be fairly, not terribly uncommon in cinema before the 70s, I guess. Like, I just didn't find this so artsy that, you know, I think my kids actually could, <laughs> if they were not scarred. I, I was on the edge of it, encouraging my son and his girlfriend to see this at some point together. Because he's watched Game of Thrones, it's like he's immured to to people getting their heads beaten in. So as long as you can get past that, I think that if you kind of just surrender yourself and like, this is going to be a new kind of thing, you can figure it out. It's not that crazy. I remember um, when that Terrence Malick film, The Tree of Life, came out, which I think also was a big flop at the box office. Theaters would put out placards outside saying, basically, this is an art film. It's not a conventional movie, even though it has Brad Pitt in it. <laughs> you know, don't expect some standard romance story. So, uh, yeah, trying to set audience expectations for something unusual, I guess. Right. I expect in any art film, there's going to be boring parts. <laughs> From 2001 forward, you know, you're going you're to watch the spaceships flying very slowly with the classical music going. <laughs> And I was grateful that this film didn't have more of that, that, you know, the beginning had that open, I'm not sure what's going on or why nothing is immediately happening. But yeah, if anybody just says art film, then I would just like prepare to be patient. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you need to get you going. Whereas the tree of life or something like, no, you're being patient for a large portion of that film. If I remember it correctly, (laughs) I didn't feel bored by it. I know you said at the beginning you felt bored, Wes. I had, it was a mixture, it was a motley of non-boredom in the form of just discomfort. Sure, yeah. And then boredom in the sense of, I don't know what's going on and I, I want to plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's a boredom that can come from being overwhelmed too and just disoriented. Um, and were you affected, Wes, by who you're seeing it with? Uh, no, I saw it with a friend. I saw it with Chatham, by the way, who's a huge fan of this podcast and who's given us a lot of feedback and I'd see him regularly now. And he was, it was good to talk to him about it. I actually tried to get him to come on the podcast, but he actually thought we should have a female guest. For this. We tried. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> but by the way, so just to clarify, I did not find it boring the second time at all. 
I was actually just kind of really enjoyed it the whole way through. But again, I think, Mark, as you pointed out, I was anticipating this conversation. I was taking notes the whole way. I was actively trying to think about it and notice, pay attention to small details. And I did see it with uh, you know this house that I run with a bunch of people from the house who were, they weren't all that happy with it. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think my film education is probably ruined some of the experience of movie watching for me, Wes, because I think every film I watch, I'm kind of in that space, whether I want to be or not. The first time I watch anything. Yeah, get the notepad out. When I watched Close Encounters, I was not anticipating going to see Close Encounters and wanting to take notes and and then being obsessed with writing this long thing that no one is going to read over the course of the next few days. <laughs> but I had my phone out and I was completely alone in this massive theater. So I could do that. And I just sat there and I took notes all the way through. It's more enjoyable in some ways and less in, the, in others. You can't be as fully immersed. Well, yeah, and it's interesting how a comedy is generally better in a big theater when everybody's laughing. For some kind of experiences, like having the social support there really helps. Whereas for, well, I don't know, did you feel like in a theater, this usually a horror movie is also one you would think that having the social aspect and people kind of jumping like that, that actually helps. I tend not to suck energy from crowds ever. <laughs> Like, I'd almost rather have any experience, even a political rally, in the privacy of my own home. But I think I'm not normal. Or do you feel like a film like this is better taken in, in absolute isolation, where you're just you in the film, rather than people around you reacting in various ways? Is that just distracting, Wes, especially in a film like this, with people not excited about it? No, it wasn't It wasn't distracting. They knew what they were getting into, and... They had every opportunity to leave, and they are people who are very interested in film, and they're up for more than an easy blockbuster or something like that. But still, they probably had mixed feelings, so it wasn't just all negative. But it, you know, it's a weird film. <laughs> it's uh, is anyone really going to come away enthusiastic from that movie? I don't know. Sure, there were some people who made the twenty-minute YouTube videos interpreting it. I'm sure were very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> Gnosticism, cool. Aren't those people there? They're just doing every movie under the sun and noticing little details in there. And they're interpreting Avengers two in that level <laughs> of detail. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I think this is something too that's different from literature and film, and especially a film recently in the current form of distribution that it takes. Your experience of a film can be so affected by the circumstances in which you watch it. You know, with literature, I think the book has kind of been for a long time the sort of singular experience that we we think of how we experience a text. And obviously that's changed a little bit recently with blogs and e-readers and things like that. But with a film, I mean, for a long time, the expectation was that you were seeing something in a theater. Your attention was completely focused with a group of people. And obviously now that's no longer the case. And there's many different contexts you can see a film in. And that might have a, a massive effect on your experience of it and, and even your interpretation of it. Strange, I interpret every film in the terms of periodic snack breaks. I don't know, I don't know why, I, if I'm just imposing that on the films. I... <laughs> One thing that we didn't touch on, which I thought might be interesting to talk about very briefly, is just the idea of film versus literature and, and how those are interpreted, specifically in relation to this question of authorial intent. 
I think it's really interesting that in the in the history of film, around the same time that you were seeing the new criticism movement, so the like mid forties, I guess, mid to late forties, and then into the fifties and sixties with Bart's death of the author and things like that, was exactly the time in film history where the exact opposite was happening. So the idea of the auteur the filmmaker or director being the sort of singular author of a work was just starting to be popularized. And I think that's something you still see today in filmmaking. You know, there's with this film, for instance, there's so many articles that I saw when you, if you Google mother Aronofsky interpretation, people sort of chasing after Aronofsky to get him to pin down what his intentions were. So there's still definitely this sort of cult of the auteur, but it is an inherently collaborative medium. So there's something distinct there about how we interpret it, I think. Yeah, with even more a tissue of references than in a text, perhaps, because you're relying on for the cinematic techniques themselves. You know, almost nothing is going to be really original. <laughs> Just by the the very limited nature of the materials available, I guess. Yes, this is very unique to have it so claustrophobic and focused on her, but I'm sure there's other movies that that technique was fairly directly lifted from. And not to mention, who are we crediting with that decision to film that way? Are we crediting Aronofsky? Are we crediting his director of photography? Inherently, it's a collaboration. We can't give Aronofsky all the credit. And the, the performers bring their own things to the work, which shape how we interpret it. I'm feeling like I want to... All movie discussions come back to Star Wars somehow. <laughs> it's so good that George Lucas showed us that the... Uh, auteur model is not always the best. Collaboration is better, in fact, and all levels. I suppose it depends on who you are. Do you think there'll be prequels to Mother, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> and they'll all be exactly the same. I went back to confirm with myself, you know, because at the end of the movie, it's a different mother. So was the burned face at the beginning, I had assumed that that was Jennifer Lawrence's that it was just cycling circularly. But no, it actually, I, I'm pretty, you know, it did a direct A-B comparison <laughs> zooming back and forth in the film to like, no, that's a different person. At least it seems pretty clear. And in fact, his reaction is not even the same. Bardem, his character, is that the first time he's putting the jewel up and he's kind of solemn about it. At the end of the film, he puts the jewel up and he's actually kind of laughing with joy at the creation or something. And whether that means something... Right. I had read that also the comparison to Noah, that the sort of Gnostic maybe, or the interpretation of Noah that he was obsessed with is that why it was a big deal that God promised, I will never flood the world again, is because he had done it again and again and again before that. And that that's apparently written into that film. I did not see that film. This is secondhand. But the, uh, you know, so I was trying to wonder if that was going on here too, that there was something different about this time around that he had reached some enlightenment, thus the laughter and not purely a uh, Sisyphusian <laughs> endless cycle that will always end in the same tragedy. Well, I think you raise an interesting point because uh, talking about sort of the circumstances of viewing, the idea of being able to sort of um, immediately compare that opening scene with the closing scene you know, that's something that's a relatively recent development. 30 years ago, you wouldn't be able to make that sort of comparison and do that sort of deep interpretation. So yeah, that's something that's, it's opened up a space for closer interpretation than what might have previously been possible. Yeah, I thought it was going to be an endless cycle. I didn't yeah. pay attention to the signs that something was different. I thought it just the movie was ending the way it had began. Well, 
If only we could ask the author if things will be different this time. <laughs> Screw the author. <laughs> Let's decide for ourselves. <laughs> Next time, we're going to do some more analytic philosophy. We have the return of Lawrence Dusty Dahlman from our uh, Wilfred Sellers episode, and he recommended two essays for us. Donald Davidson's 1973 article on the very idea of a conceptual scheme. And he thought that was somehow very much related to Rudolf Carnap's 1950 article, Empiricism, Semantics, and Ontology. So that is the double feature for next time. You should know that there is a supplementary citizen-only discussion. It's not a follow-up on this discussion of this movie. It's just another thing that I was thinking about in light of all the identity politics stuff that came up in our Lysistrata discussion. I talked with Wes for an hour about what his beef is with identity politics what about that topic we have not already discussed in our white privilege episode and other episodes? What texts we might read in this area? So if you're interested in hearing more about that topic, hearing what our views are, I encourage you to become a partially examined life citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com or support us on Patreon at the $5 level. We do plan to continue to release discussions like that, whether directly related to the preceding episode or not, and remain grateful to those who support us such that we can pay ourselves little to do those and make it worth our time. Finally, for the closing song, if you listen to Nakedly Examined Music episode 72, I talked to Sarah McQuaid, who was a philosophy major. She's also a wonderful guitarist, and you're about to hear The Day of Wrath That Day from her new album, If We Dig Any Deeper, It Could Get Dangerous. I thought having an instrumental provided a nice ironic conclusion to a discussion of a film that has no soundtrack. So check out my discussion with Sarah at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Wes. This was a nice uh, little idea. I'm glad we did this. I enjoyed the experience. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Tim. Yeah, it was a pleasure. We want to hear what folks think. Go to the blog. Go to our Facebook group. Comment on Twitter. Send us an email. Do you like this kind of episode that's not strictly philosophy? Do you like us talking about other media like this? Was this a good choice? <laughs> I wanted to talk about crimes and misdemeanors, so I'll just put that out there. <laughs> that, is, that is on the record. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.